Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you again on this day. And again, for those following our live stream, it's good to have you tagging along with us this morning. I want to ask you to take and take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Uh, we'll continue our journey through Luke's Gospel. Our text for today is Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. Luke 9, 10 through 17, a passage that most would be familiar with, but if not, we are delighted to introduce it to you today. Luke chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading in verse 10. These are the inspired words of Luke as he records the feeding of the 5,000. Luke 9 verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, they began to wear, now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we consider it for our good and your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is the old saying that God helps those who help themselves. It's been quoted many a time throughout the years, even by a lot of Christians. But where did that statement come from? It's not the Bible. Best we can tell, it originated in Ben Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. In fact, Franklin adapted it most likely from a story about Hercules. Story goes, a wagon gets stuck in the mud and a man cries out to Hercules for help. And Hercules replies, get up and put your shoulder to the wheel for the gods help them that help themselves. So you can think Greek mythology perhaps for a statement like that, not the Bible. But I wonder how for many of us, for how many of us, that that might be our default thinking. It sounds good, maybe. Sounds maybe American. Pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. Work harder and God will reward you. After all, he helps them who help themselves. But is that really true? I think when you read the Bible, you are presented with a radically different picture. In fact, the entire storyline of the Bible is that we have an all-powerful and all-wise and sovereign God who doesn't help those who help themselves, but help those who could never help themselves. 
We have this story throughout from Genesis to Revelation that God is an all-powerful creator and savior pursuing a rebellious and enslaved people who cannot help or save themselves. In fact, he delights in helping the helpless, showing himself gloriously powerful as he does it. Well, we come to a passage today that is well known. In fact, this is the only miracle account recorded in all four Gospels. What we have here in this account is an example of Jesus displaying the power and glory and magnificence of God as he helps the helpless. And as he helps the helpless, he demonstrates to even his own disciples how good and glorious he is and how we must trust him and depend upon him. For everything that we need in life. So as we consider this text today, a passage that's familiar to so many, I want us to identify several things that we learn about Jesus. Indeed, this text is about the beauty and glory of Christ, and I want us to glean from it exactly, I believe, as the Holy Spirit inspired Luke to record this and the other gospel writers as well, what we understand about the nature and character and power and glory of who Jesus Christ really is. This is not merely a, or even at all, a moralistic kind of thing to encourage you to be generous. This is a declaration of the divine authority of Jesus Christ and how we must look to him and depend upon him for everything that we need in this world. Several points that we want to look at today, and we begin with the first. Who is this Jesus that we see? Number one, he is a compassionate shepherd. Jesus is a compassionate shepherd. In verses 10 and 11, we see that the apostles had now returned from their missionary journey. We just dropped them off a week ago, and now they're back, so about a week out, right? We don't know how long it was, but now they're back, and they were reporting everything that they had done. Remember, Jesus had given them power and authority to cast out demons and to heal and to go proclaim the kingdom of God to preach the gospel, and they had gone, and now they had returned, and they were given reports about all that they had experienced, and then Jesus decides to take them away for a respite, to get away from all that they had been doing so that they could rest and recover from this work. But we find very quickly that this retreat was going to be delayed a bit because as Jesus and the disciples make their way away to a desolate place, the crowds follow. Now, you think about that. You're probably, especially if you're in the sandals of the apostles, right? You've just been out serving. You're probably exhausted. And all you want to do is just kind of have a break. And now you turn around and there's thousands of people following you. Could be that they're frustrated. The text doesn't necessarily tell us that. But I'm sure that there was opportunity at least for frustration after all the hard work that they had been engaged in, wanting just a simple rest. But now thousands of people were there. What would they do about it? Well, I want us to look at how Jesus handles the situation. Verse 11, when the crowds learned it, we're told they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured, cured those who had need of healing. That's how he handles it. He welcomes them and he speaks to them of the kingdom of God and he heals those who had need. 
In the other gospel, right, in the other gospel accounts, we read that when he saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them. One gospel writer tells us because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He was compassionate toward them. His heart broke over them. Jesus had indeed planned for he and his disciples to have that rest. But when he sees this crowd, he sets aside his plans to minister to the disciples. And now he's ministering to the thousands. William Hendrickson, one commentator, said that the needs of the people, sick, ignorant, and disconsolate, and hungry, meant far more to him than his own convenience and ease. And so what we're going to see here was going to be a very important lesson for the 12 and for others, including us today. What we see here is Jesus is modeling, he's instructing, and one gospel writer tells us that he was setting this up as a test for his disciples. He recognizes the people, the crowds, for who they are and what they needed, not whether or not they were a burden. And he gives them what they truly need. He proclaims to them the kingdom of God and he ministers to their physical needs. That's an important lesson on its own. He gives them what they truly needed, not what they were seeking necessarily. Note, by the way, that he does the very same thing. He proclaims the kingdom of God and he cures the diseases. The very same thing he had tasked and commissioned the disciples earlier to go out and do in their missionary work. I think this passage is a good good reminder for us. It's a good place to just check our own hearts from time to time. You see here Jesus, when he, when he sees the crowd, he has compassion upon them and he preaches to them, he serves them, he ministers to them. He puts them as a priority. And I wonder how we often view those around us, unbelievers particularly, those who are needy. How is it that you view people, even those who seem overbearing? obnoxious, obtrusive? What is your attitude towards such people? Friends, if we're going to be faithful disciples, we must go about ministering to others with compassion. We must care for those who have need. What is your default attitude towards non-Christians? Do you see unbelievers as people who are hopelessly lost in sin, sheep without a shepherd, or do you see them more as a drain and burden and enemy to fight? Friends, it's sad but often true that Christians present a negative impression to others simply for lacking compassion. Lacking compassion. How we treat people. How we speak to people, even those who may embrace radically different worldviews and lifestyles and other things that stand in direct opposition to the ways and standard of God. How we treat people is of most importance. The church has done more damage to its witness by lacking compassion than we often care to realize. The gospel of Jesus Christ will be offensive. But that does not give Christians a license to themselves be offensive. 
We need to be a people known for our empathy, our humility, our sacrifice, and yet too often we are known more for our hostility and our lack of compassion. Compassion was the way of Jesus, and it doesn't, it, it doesn't compete with conviction. Jesus was a man of conviction, a man of principle. He stood on the truth and the foundation of the word of God and yet was compassionate. It doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to evil and error. It doesn't mean that we merely become doormats and allow people to take advantage of us, but it does mean that our attitude and our approach to people must be one of compassion and care especially for those who are desperately lost in their sin. You see, Jesus is a compassionate shepherd. He tended to the thousands. He had compassion on them. He put them before his own needs, before his own needs. And, you know, it probably wasn't the most convenient time to have to deal with 5,000 men plus women and children. But he turns to them and serves them. This is going to be a very important lesson for the disciples. Number two, you see that he is a sovereign provider. Not only is he compassionate, he is sovereign. And that perhaps is the center point of this text. We see, according to the scripture, that as the day begins to wind down, probably nearing sunset, the 12, the disciples, the apostles, see a significant problem. They, they weren't ignorant. They, they see a problem on the horizon. Here they are with some 5,000 men plus women and children and the disciples and Jesus have the only Airbnb in town. So they suggest to Jesus that it's time to send this mass of humanity away so that the crowds can go find their own food and lodging. It was drawing near to the end of the day. and I mean, it's a logical conclusion, a reasonable suggestion that they had. Jesus, it's been great to preach to them. It's been great to, to cure many of the diseases, but it's getting dark. These people are going to be hungry. They're going to need a place to stay. Let's send them on their merry way. But Jesus throws a wrench into things in verse 13. He said to them, you give them something to eat. Again, John's account informs us that Jesus was doing this to test the disciples. You give them something to eat. Now, I'm sure that had we been there, we would have heard the nervous laughter among the disciples. Maybe some comments such as, you're joking, right? But Jesus wasn't joking. This was no... casual, joking statement. Jesus was serious. You give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. I mean, even if they were big rock fish, we don't, we don't have enough. Unless we go and buy food for all these people, and then where are we going to go? I mean, we're in a desolate place. You, you see the problem the disciples were wrestling with in their own mind Jesus, there's all of these thousands of people. We have this little bit of food probably for themselves, for the, for the retreats. And Jesus says, you feed them. You see, the problem here is not that the disciples were oblivious to the need. They saw the need. They recognized the problem. 
They saw the need before them. The problem, though, was that the one option they never considered was that Jesus would be the one to provide for that need. This is not the first time we've seen a story like this in the Bible. In fact, you, you see it during Elisha's day. If you go to 2 Kings chapter 4, Elisha instructed a man with 20 loaves to feed a group of people, a large group of people. And you have very similar language there in 2 Kings chapter 4. You also, in Exodus chapter 16, with Israel in the wilderness, how God provides manna for them. So the disciples look around, and all they can muster up are these five loaves of bread and two fish. Thus, the impossibility of the situation is established right here in the text. And Luke's description of this account is presented in a way that seems to, to show a setback for the disciples. Think about it. Where had they just returned from and what had they just returned from doing? They had spent time watching Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle. They had heard him teach. They had been sent out on a preaching and healing mission, having been given authority and power to do that. They themselves have participated in the miraculous. And now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they lack faith that such a large crowd can be served with such few resources. So Jesus continues to instruct them, and he tells his disciples in verse 14, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Just counting the 5,000 men, we know there were others, according to the other gospel writers, that have been about 100 groups. And so they did. The disciples do it. Again, notice Jesus is in the midst of performing a miracle, and he's utilizing the disciples in this moment. They're not passive. They're working alongside of Jesus, following his instruction, doing as he asked them to do. And then taking the bread and the fish, he looked to heaven, he said a blessing, and he broke the loaves and gave the disciples to distribute. And the rest is history. The crowd was fed. Now, there's no detail here in the text on how the multiplication of these loaves and fish took place. Just the fact that more than enough food was provided, miraculously so. Again, this is, this is an account that, that has some backdrop to it in the Old Testament. In, in Exodus 16, if we go back to that account of Israel in the wilderness and Moses leading them. We know that as they make their way along, the people grumbled and they complained because they were hungry. They even say, would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you, Moses, you have brought us out into this assembly with hunger. They were hangry. And the Lord miraculously provides manna for them. Day after day after day after day, and they ate. You see what we have here, have a bit of a foreshadow of that in the Old Testament, but what we have here is Jesus is saying, he's declaring in essence that he's not merely another Moses, but God himself as the one who has the means to provide for the needs of the people. We know in the Old Testament account it wasn't long until the 
people began even to complain about the manna. They just weren't satisfied, were they? Numbers chapter 11, we see this. We read that the people, after God had given them bread to eat, now they're saying, bread's not enough. Give us meat. And Moses, struggling in the midst of all this, later asked the Lord, the people among whom I number 6,000, or excuse me, 600,000 on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and be enough for them? Moses is wrestling, like, how is this going to happen? They don't even have rolling freezers to keep the meat from spoiling. And the Lord said to Moses, one simple question. Is the Lord's hand shortened? Is the Lord's hand shortened? You see here in this text, the disciples were more fixated on the problem than they were on the one who could provide the solution. And this miracle was a major teaching point, a test for the disciples as they would continue on in ministry. It's an important test, an important lesson for us as well. There will be times, many times perhaps, when we are in a situation that is beyond our ability and control. And it's in those moments, it's in those moments that we realize just how small and little and limited we are. And friends, I think that that is exactly where the Lord wants us to be. It's the place we all need to be if we expect to go about life and ministry faithfully. Because if we are not regularly looking to Christ to provide and pave the way forward for us, we will inevitably look somewhere else and draw very different conclusions. And that is dangerous. Friends, when we are faced with overwhelming circumstances, we have a simple choice to make. Will we look to a sovereign God who can give us all that we need or will we simply conclude that even his hands are tied? Is our hope, is our trust, is our confidence in an all-wise, totally sovereign, miracle-working, demon-defeating, disease-conquering, storm-calming Savior whose hands and resources are never tied or will we merely cave underneath the overwhelming circumstances and say, it just can't happen? The disciples here in this text needed to see that, oh, it can happen. If Christ calls you to do something, he will give you everything you need to accomplish that task. They needed to see that things they never dreamed possible could be accomplished if indeed the Lord called them to it. It's the beauty of having it recorded for us here in the Gospels is that we get to learn the same lesson. This was not just for the 12. It was for you and for me right here in 2020. Sometimes we too get our eyes fixed more on the problem than on the power and glory and majesty of Jesus. Sometimes we look at a situation that the Lord has brought us to, quickly do the math and say, not possible. But friend, is, is the Lord's hand shortened? Is the Lord's hand shortened? 
You see, he is the one we must always be looking to and trusting in, not to give us whatever we want. He's no genie in a lamp. But he is the one that we must rest in and pursue and trust. And when we pursue him and all that he has for us, know that nothing can stand in the way. even if it seems impossible. Friends, it's just a good reminder to us is when the Lord calls you to something, are you trusting more in your own resources and ability and engineering brain or are you trusting Christ? Which is it? Are you doing the math? Are you trusting the Lord's math if he's called you to something? Brothers and sisters, God's resources are never exhausted. He's not obligated to give us whatever we want, but he has promised that he will give us whatever we need, even if that need seems impossible. He is faithful and trustworthy to supply us whatever the need is because he is a sovereign provider. Number three, he's an all-satisfying Savior. He's an all-satisfying Savior. We're told that after he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, in verse 17 it says, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. So Jesus feeds the crowds. They were all satisfied. They just didn't get a little, little piece and still hungry. They were all full. Satisfied, and there were leftovers, 12 baskets full. Now, as you, as you consider this account, I think it's helpful to bring some of the other gospel accounts of this same narrative into play. Because if you keep in mind at this point, Jesus is ministering to a crowd, and, and this was not the first time crowds followed Jesus. He was used to this. It was common for crowds to be tracking along with Jesus, following him, especially when he was performing miracles. But we need to keep in mind that at this point, Jesus has these mass crowds following him, and most of them, even many, even those that had their their diseases cured, the vast majority of them never embrace him as the Messiah. Most followed him as a miracle worker or maybe saw him as a political revolutionary. And yet he compassionately meets their needs. John's account, if you go to John chapter 6, John's account tells us that after the miracle was accomplished, the crowd proclaimed, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And they were about to, by force, make him king. I mean, things get out of hand. But again, they're not thinking Messiah in in the way that the Bible presents. They were thinking something different. Because Jesus responds to that. You would think, okay, this is, this is the time. If the crowds are amped up and they're about to make him king, Jesus would say, where's the crown? That's not what happened. Jesus leaves. That's what happens. You're thinking, wait a minute. He just ministers to all of these people. He had just showed them compassion. He had taught them the things concerning the kingdom of God. He had healed their sick and he had fed their empty stomachs. Why would he leave? 
Well, they follow him and ask him the same question. They're like, wait a minute, where are you going? And in John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You see, the reason he left the crowd was that they were confused about what Jesus truly came to give them. They see him as a means to an end, an inexhaustible bread supplier. They see him as a help to a better end, maybe a help to a better job, a better marriage, a better health situation, a better food stocking circumstance. And while he certainly makes a difference in all of these kinds of situations, Jesus, friends, is is not merely a means to our own end. The text is teaching us and pointing to the fact that Jesus is the one who can ultimately and truly satisfy, the only one. He wasn't a means to be satisfied with something else. He was the one and is the one that satisfies. In fact, if you were turned to John's gospel in John chapter 6, I want to just read this text. This is John's account of the right after the, the feeding of the 5,000, and I think this is helpful for us to see. Verse 25, John 6, verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me because you not, saw, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must, be we, what, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What, what work do you perform? Never mind, just the feeding of the 5,000 just took place. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, Jesus was setting up the stage even in this miracle account to show them physically as an example that he is ultimately the one spiritually that can truly satisfy. He's the true bread of the story. He is the true bread from heaven. And folks, when we, when we, when we see that, when we understand that, we, we need to understand that that we often look to so many other things in this world to satisfy us. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Maybe, you, maybe you're just here and you're, you're interested. Maybe you have questions about the faith. And maybe you just, you've not trusted in Christ. You, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe. And, and yet you've looked time after time again to find other things, other people, other circumstances in order to try, and, try to find true satisfaction. But what this passage would reveal is that you will never find true satisfaction outside of Christ. No degree, no career, no relationship, no amount of money will ever give you lasting satisfaction. All of that will leave you empty. Only Christ can fill you. 
Only Christ is the true bread sent from heaven for the hungry. And friend, if you're here today and you've not trusted in Jesus Christ and you you, you understand maybe God's revealing to you that you are in sin and that you're going to stand to, before a holy and righteous God to give account one day. And, and how in the world is, are you going to make it on that day? Well, how in the world is any of us going to make it on that day? Because we are all sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. The only way we're going to make it on that great and glorious and final day is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, by eating the true bread of heaven, we could say. It's an act of faith in him, by resting our case in him, by understanding that only in Christ can we truly be satisfied. Only in Christ can we have life to the full and life eternal. The feeding of the 5,000. This is no story that serves as a moral lesson to get us to share our food. This is a divine declaration. This is a divine miracle that exposes just how much we need Jesus. And from the crowd's perspective, there's a couple perspectives that we could, that we could stand from viewing this miracle. From the crowd's perspective, when you compare all of the different gospel accounts of this miracle, the response to this miracle are telling, the responses. Some do believe, beyond the 12, there were some in the crowd who believed and desired the true bread that Jesus offered. Maybe you're at that point today. Maybe you realize that your search to be satisfied in this life has come up empty time and time and time again. And and now you realize because of the grace of God at work in you that only Christ can satisfy and that you're longing to know him more. Friend, just put your hope and trust in him and you will be satisfied. Maybe you realize that your search... Maybe it's come to an end today because you see Christ for who he is. Look to him. He's the true bread you need, and he will never leave you empty. But the vast majority of those crowds, they didn't embrace Jesus as the true bread sent from heaven. They were just merely intrigued by him. No real desire to follow Jesus. They just wanted a quick miracle. Heal me or feed me, and then they would go on their way. And I think that the sad reality today is there's a lot of people like that in this world. They want Jesus for what he can give them now. I I want Jesus to help this. I'm not really concerned about eternity. I'm not concerned about my sin. I'm just concerned about this practical need and maybe Jesus can help me get it. Maybe he's the means to to an end that I have. Maybe you're intrigued by Jesus. Maybe he's interesting to you, but you don't have any desire whatsoever to follow him as a disciple. You see, friend, many on that day left physically filled and yet remained spiritually empty. What a sad and deadly place to be. From the disciples' perspective, Jesus was teaching them some pretty important information. He was teaching us the same And what he's calling us to here, friends, as followers of Jesus, is that we would see Jesus for who he is as we seek to thrive in the callings that he's given each and every one of us. As we go forward, I think this text calls us to do so with compassion, with empathy, marking our attitudes and our actions towards others. That we would go forward in faith, knowing that God is able, knowing that the the hand of the Lord is never shortened. 
that he can sovereignly provide anything he chooses. And that our hope would not be on whether or not we can resolve this circumstance that God has called us into, but rather our eyes and our gaze would be fixed upon Christ, trusting in this sovereign one who can do anything, who can calm the storm and raise the dead. And that, friend, we would go forward in satisfied joy, knowing that, yes, Jesus does fill our empty stomachs, but he also fills our empty souls. That he becomes Lord and master over our lives. And he gives us endless delight and endless satisfaction and endless joy. And have you been walking in that joy? Have you been walking in that satisfaction as of late? Maybe this is merely a reminder just to check your own heart. Check my own heart that, you know what? I've not been, I've, I've, I've not been looking to Christ in that way. I know that's who he is and that's what he's given me, but my eyes have been fixed on everything else but him. And maybe the Lord is using this text to remind you and to check you today, to convict you and confront you that your eyes need to be fixed heavenward, not upon the things of this world. You would quit looking inside of you and other things in this world for help when Christ stands present and waiting to be called upon and trusted in. May that be who we are as the people of God, compassionate, trusting, and satisfied. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this word and this glorious miracle that shows us so much about who you are. Father, we're thankful that we have been shown the beauty and glory and power and majesty of who Jesus is. And that in the midst of life's chaos, in the midst of life's overwhelming circumstances, in the midst of things that seem just beyond us and impossible, that we would not shrink back in discouragement, that we would never shrink back in being paralyzed because of the circumstances around us, but, Father, that we would go forward in faith knowing that you are able and that as your people we would be a compassionate presence in this world to point people to that same reality where they can truly find satisfaction. Father, may you work in each of our hearts today these glorious truths. Would you convict us where we have lacked this trust and confidence? And would you lead us to trust you? Would you lead our eyes and our hearts to be fixed not upon what we can do, but upon what you have promised you would do? So, Father, would you help our faith to be increased? Would you help our compassion to be true? And would you help our satisfaction to be joyful? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.